We continue in our study of Exodus this morning, so I invite you to open up your Bibles, and Heather McKibben is going to bring our Bible reading from Exodus to us this morning. Our second reading this morning is taken from Exodus chapter 15, beginning at verse 22, and reading through to chapter 16 and verse 20, and it can be found on page 73 of the Pew Bible. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and the law for them, and they were here, he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve us this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it is the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked towards the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one of you is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. 
The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Let's pray. Gracious, sovereign God, on this Remembrance Sunday, we come with heavy hearts for the men and women who've paid the ultimate sacrifice to secure the freedoms we enjoy today. We pause to reflect upon our blessings as a nation and the high cost of those blessings for many. We thank you for those who've served in the armed services, risking their lives for our freedom. And we remember the sacrifice that many made during the wars and subsequent conflicts that followed and that continue to this day. We pray for the families and friends of those who've given their lives in service. What pain and sadness they feel for their great loss. Father, may you comfort those in sadness and may they know that you are with them. And even as we remember those who have given their lives in the past, we think of those who are risking their lives today. We think of men and women who are serving in conflicts across this world. And as they serve in, this area, in these areas, may they know your protection, your strength, and your encouragement. And may you bring them home safely. We pray for those who have sacrificed so much and returned home with injuries, both emotionally and physically, as a result of war and conflict. We think especially this morning of those who are dealing with the difficult reality of having taken a life. Father, we pray for them and ask that you will draw near to them and to their families. May they receive the help that they need, and may there be a drawing to you even in the midst of intolerable situations and circumstances. Father, we pray that your voice will be heard. We pray too for army chaplains who serve across this world, that they will know your equipping and enabling for this difficult role that you have called them to, and that they will be able to point men and women towards you. We pray for our political leaders today as they pursue diplomatic paths that may prevent needless conflict, but ultimately know that peace will not come until your kingdom is here in all its fullness. But Father, we pray now for a foretaste of that future. We pray for the growth of peace throughout our land and our world. May your kingdom come, we pray. And Father, may you make us more aware of how blessed we are as a nation and as a people. May we be more thankful for our blessings, more faithful in looking after them, and more eager to share them with others. And in praying for our world, we pray for America today and for President-elect Trump. May you grant to him wisdom and courage. May he be guided by both boldness and restraint. May he be a defender of the unborn, a protector of marriage, a champion for religious liberty. May he have a heart for the poor, a concern for the perilous, and compassion on the weak. May he be a man of prayer and a student of your word. 
May he have humility to admit his faults, forgive his enemies, and to change his mind. And Father, in the midst of such a divided country on the back of this election, may your peace and your presence be known. Father, it's a privilege to partner in the gospel. And today we remember John McKibben and Andrew Schott as they prepared ahead to Moldova on Thursday. As they reestablish and build new relationships, will you go ahead of them, we pray. As they consider, consider possible ways in which Bloomfield can support and be involved in the work in that land, grant to them your wisdom and insight. As John and Andrew speak in Golgotha Baptist Church next weekend, may they be aware of your equipping and enabling. And Father, may you be with the one who will translate what they say. We think about the projects that they will visit. We pray for the Dorcas outreach and the difference it seeks to make in the lives of some of the most needy and vulnerable in Moldova and the Island of Hope Center for the rescued trafficked girls. Father, grant to John and Andrea a real sense of your peace, a real sense of your presence with them. Father, may they know the right words to say. And Father, may this time be a blessing to the folks in Moldova to the congregation of Golgotha, to John and Andrew, and Father, in return to ourselves here in Bloomfield as we seek to build on our partnership with Moldova. Finally, Father, we pray for our own church family, for those who are hurting, those who are suffering and bereaved. We bring before you those who are burdened and anxious about the future. For the families who've lost loved ones in recent days, may your comfort and your peace be known. For those who are sick and ill, those who are worried about loved ones, Father, may you keep your people in suffering very close to you. Father, as this day directly focuses on the brokenness of this world, on war, on death, on pain and suffering, we thank you that there is a remedy. We thank you for Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus who secures our heavenly freedom, who secured our eternal life for those who trust in him. We ultimately live because of his death. So, Father God, be active in our armed forces, be active in our land, be active in our community, be active in our world. And we pray this all now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, acknowledging Jeffrey's last Sunday formally in the morning service here. I've had the pleasure of working with Jeffrey over the last five, six months, and you've had him for the last couple of years. And if he's at and been like the last five or six months, he's been faithful, centered on the gospel, uh, knows you very well, uh, and loves you very well. And I'm just uh, I'm sad today that we're saying goodbye. And I just want to encourage you, uh, if you're not a regular on Sunday night, come along tonight to hear his last sermon. You might fall asleep like the famous Acts passage, but it's also a chance to say our goodbyes and to acknowledge Jeffrey's time after the service. But if you're not um, able to make it out tonight, he's at Life Builders uh, after the service. But I thought we'd just acknowledge by giving him a round of applause, thanking him publicly. Is that all right? Let's, let's turn to God's word. We're in Acts or Exodus chapter 15, 16. 
predominantly this morning. So if you'd like to turn to page 73 and have that open in front of you, and I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Father, we're conscious this morning as we come to this passage of your acts of exodus, your acts of redemption. And Father, you've done it so that we would know you as the Lord and to see your glory. Father, help us this morning to know you and to see your glory afresh today, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This series ran for six series or six seasons, having its first screening on the 4th of January, 1990, on the BBC. Love it or hate it, the show One Foot in the Grave is known for its main character, Victor Mildrew, played by Richard Wilson. You may be familiar with it, you may not, you may hate it, you may love it. Victor Mildrew is a cantankerous, grumpy old man who's always fighting, complaining, and groaning about things. And his famous line is, I do not believe it. Do you remember that from the show? And I guess this is a, a, a characteristic of who he is. But the fact is, we all know people or persons in our lives who are the Victor Mildrew types. You may even be one yourself, always complaining, always moaning. Take, for example, the person at work, like Michael. When he comes into the office, he moans about the traffic. When he's on his coffee break, he complains about his line manager. When he's photocopying, if you get stuck with him, he'll lament over how much work he has to do compared to others. A real moaning Michael. You know them, don't you? You may even be one of them. Or take Veronica, who attends her local church. Every Sunday, going out the door of her church, she'll unleash a list of complaints. The music was too loud. The kids too noisy. Reverend, you spoke too quickly. The church was too cold. The sermon was too long. Next week, it was too short. Complaint after complaint. And I suppose the question is, what is going on when we complain and grumble? What does God think about grumbling and the attitude of complaining? Does God's word have anything to say to the likes of Michael or Veronica or even ourselves concerning this attitude of grumbling and moaning? Let's come and find out in God's word, because as you have it open in front of you, the last few verses of chapter 15, verse 22 onwards, and into chapter 16 this morning, we need to keep in mind that what has gone before, God has rescued his people from the yoke of slavery under Pharaoh. We've been seeing that after week through the means of the plagues, that final first plague of the firstborn being a decisive moment when Pharaoh turned and said, let my people go, go. God has led his people into this unknown wilderness, but has guided them through the pillar of fire and the cloud. God has supernaturally made the way for them through the Red Sea while the Egyptians died in it. The people have worshiped, chapter 15. They've sung their praise in chapter 15. Remember all, in, all that God has done for them and will do for them. And as we come to chapter 15, verse 22 to 27, which is open in front of you, our first heading this morning is this, the whining begins, or if you use an ulster, the gurning begins. After leaving the Red Sea, the people are traveling around for three days in the wilderness without any source of water, no water for three days. Verse 23, they come to a place called Marah, there's water, 
but they couldn't drink it because it was bitter. I spent a few summers, um, I'm sure you've done some similar, working with Christian unions, bringing summer teams to Ukraine, and we would stay at these Ukrainian campsites, and the water from the taps would be brownish in color. And you were told not to drink it directly, but you could use it for showers and brushing your teeth. But often there was this kind of smell or strange odor from it. So it was brown in color, but then when you're brushing your teeth and it goes down the back of your throat, you go, hmm, not nice. And then others were using bottled water, which sissies, you know. And yet, this is it. This is what it was like. And I imagine that the experience was similar to what the Israelites had here. Imagine, after three days of no water, no source of it, they come to this place called Mara, and it has an oasis or a source of water, but the water is bitter. And we're told in verse 24 that the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? There's no doubt they have a physical need. The people haven't found water in three days. But what is their response? It is to grumble, to complain about their condition. But notice how Moses reacts. He doesn't complain or grumble, but in fact, in verse 25, it says, he cried out to the Lord. He prayed. He prayed to the Lord for help. And the Lord miraculously, supernaturally, shows Moses a piece of wood, or better understood as a tree, and it was thrown into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Folks, it's, it's a complaining spirit, a grumbling attitude can be justified in our thinking, can't it? Work, home, church life even, our social circle. You can justify a grumbling and complaining spirit. For the Israelites, they could argue we needed water. And of course, we needed to stay alive, to have energy, to stamina for trekking around in this wilderness. But their way of dealing with it was to complain rather than to bring it to the Lord. The place Mara, as you see from your footnote, do you see the little, at the end of the page, page 79, means bitter. And bitter is a good description of the heart attitude of the people. They had grumbled because they were, everything was outside of their control. They had needs in the wilderness, and their response was to grumble and complain. What are we to drink? Do you think that the Lord was going to drag his people, men and women, children and vulnerable, old, out of Egypt, out of slavery, only for them to die of thirst in the wilderness? Do you think he would do that? Do you think he would dramatically take them through the Red Sea, out of slavery, out of Egypt, to die for a bit of water in the wilderness? You see, the people's grumbling was a sign of their lack of confidence in God to look after them, care for them, provide for them. And when our confidence in the Lord goes, we grumble, we complain, because who else is going to care for us? Who else is going to provide for you? But how does God respond to their grumbling? He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't say to them, oh, you're some upstarts. They are, after all, his people. Instead, he turns the bitter to sweet. He makes it possible for the bitter water of Mara to be sweet for drinking. I don't want to push this too far, but God is going to reshape the bitter hearts of his people to be sweet as they navigate the wilderness. You see, this wilderness period, you need to grasp this, will be a time of learning, a time of testing, a time of transformation for God's people. And at the center of their learning and transformation for his people 
will be the lessons of what it means to be obedient and trusting. And we see this being flagged by God at the end of verse 25 into 26. The testing that God will bring to his people will have three components to it. See them in verse 26. Will they listen carefully to the Lord? Will they do what is right in his eyes? Will they pay careful attention to his commands and decrees? This testing comes with a promise. And the promise is that God will not bring the diseases that fell on Egypt upon them. But rather, as end of verse 26 says, For I am the Lord who heals you. The Lord God is going to instruct his people about how they are to live. He's going to give them decrees and commandments to follow. We'll see that in Exodus 20. He will enable them to follow them, but the people have a responsibility too. They must listen, pay careful attention, and do what is right in God's eyes. What is God concerned for? He's concerned for his people's sanctification, that holiness, that Christ-likeness. He rescues to transform his people into who he is like. The people of God have been saved for his praise and glory. They've been rescued. They need transforming, healing, renewing. And they can only do that as they listen to the word and put it into practice in what he's going to do it. Isn't it fascinating that the Lord says, I'll heal you. If I came to you this morning and you tell me you're a believer and I say to you, you know what? The Lord's going to heal you. The Lord is going to transform you, change you. Some of you might go, what change do I need? Do you not know me? I've been a Christian for 40 years. I one wonders in this passage when he says he will heal them. One wonders whether their time in slavery in Egypt created a bitter spirit within them, complaining to each other, moaning about their slave masters, and now they've been rescued. The same attitude manifests itself only in a different context, and God is going to heal them. He's going to change them. Many of us today, we rejoice in seeing people come to faith. The Bible tells us it's a party in heaven when one sinner repents. But God's work of salvation involves sanctification, making his people holy, reshaping their hearts and their lives. And sometimes it's done in a wilderness environment. We are saved for a purpose, saved for holiness of attitude, mind, and our lives. And so the people go from Marah, bitter in verse to verse 27 to this place called Elam which we're told had 12 springs and 70 palm branches do you see the contrast he goes from Mara bitter rotten water who wants to stay in Mara and then he takes them where he takes them to Elam with 12 springs and the palm branches it's the Bahamas and God led them into this so those periods of wilderness And there's periods of abundance. God has led them from a place of bitterness to a place of abundant blessing. And this is our second heading. We go from the whining begins to the whining continues in chapter 16, verses 1 to 10. We're told in verse 1, do you see it there? We're told the whole community of Israel left Elam. I'm sure they didn't want to. And they come to the desert of sin. And we are now roughly two and a half months after the Passover occurred in Egypt. And again in verse 2, what do you see? We see in the wilderness, in the desert of sin, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Listen to their words in verse 3 very carefully. They say to their leaders, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. 
but you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What words, what accusations. Here are a people who are ungrateful, immature. The Lord's intention was never to harm them or kill them in Egypt. It was to rescue them. There are people who are forgetful. They sat around pots of meat. Had they forgotten the harsh labor, the slave master's whip, the conditions of slavery, did they really believe that they were brought out to the wilderness to die? In chapter 17, verse 3, they had livestock. So they had means for milk and butter and even for meat if they wanted it. They're grumbling and complaining people. And this is a pattern of grumbling, which has not just come in now. They had it in the past. Do you remember in chapter 5, verse 21, when Moses first approached Pharaoh, the people complained afterwards because they said this, you've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. At the Red Sea, they complained. Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? The grumbling at Mara is here, as we've just seen. And here in the wilderness of sin, they grumble. The whining continues. And make no mistake about it, the Lord God hears their grumbling. Verse 8 and verse 12 tell us. But what's going on in their hearts of these Israelites when they grumble and complain. Desi Alexander in his commentary makes this helpful insight. He says this, the Israelites accuse or indict God for failing to provide for them. Matir puts it this way, for the Israelites it meant doubting whether he would prove sufficient in the past was still sufficient now that things had taken a different turn. Are you getting this? That the attitude of grumbling and complaining always has an outward manifestation anger, resentment, harsh words directed at people, even spiritual leaders at times. But it's reflecting something deeper in our hearts. And here in this case, it was that they did not think that God would provide. They doubted his sufficiency and ultimately his way of salvation. How easy it is to trust when life is in Elam, in the springs of water, in the palm trees. And yet the moment the people are moved into a period of wilderness, they grumble and complain against God ultimately. And Moses tells them straight at the end of verse 7 and verse 8, who are we? We're just the leaders. You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. We don't, and I say this we, we don't often think of our grumbling, do we? And complaining as directed against God or the Lord. The work environment is toxic. I have to fight for my rights my corner, it's dog eats dog. And yes, this may be true, but what is it really saying? That unless I fight, no one else will for me. So we grumble, we complain about our work or colleagues, but ultimately it's a complaint against God. He's not caring. He's not providing enough for me. He's not gonna stand up. He's not sufficient in my work. It's an environment that goes whining and gurning. But what about our church life together? Are we prone to moan about our leaders, about ministries, about people? Why? Is it because the church is not moving in the right direction? That could be true. Is it because certain things are not being done? But ultimately, deep down, it's a grumbling against God because his church is his. It's a dissatisfaction, a discontent with God and what he's doing amongst his people and through his people. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not shutting down complaint or grumbling on a legitimate purpose. But ultimately, 
when we grumble and complain, we're grumbling against the Lord. It says a lot about our knowledge of God. It, grumbling illustrates our theology of God and his character. And most of the time it highlights that we think he will not provide. He is not sufficient. And we're not confident in what he will do or can do under certain circumstances. So we groan the outward manifestation of it. The people of God were whining, grumbling and complaining. And it was ultimately a challenge of God against him. I think most of us can relate to this. Lord, why have you allowed for this? I thought life would be easier now that I followed you. What's this wilderness I'm in? And we grumble and complain, but ultimately it's against the Lord. What is the Lord's response to his people's grumbling and moaning? He's amazing. He doesn't disown them. He doesn't abandon them. I think if I had this, I'd just go, ah, you're on your own. He doesn't avoid them. He doesn't say, look, I'm not talking to them anymore. Instead, the Lord graciously and patiently provides for his people in two ways. The first is the gift of manna and quail. Verse 4, do you see it? I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather food for that day. This manna substance will be the staple diet of his people for the next 40 years as they journey in the wilderness. Turn over to verse 14 and you'll see that in the morning when the dew was gone, these thin flakes like frost appeared on the desert floor. Later in verse 31, we read, the people of God called the bread manna. It was like, like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. And the quail, which is a migratory bird, is given once in the evening, verse 14, in such large quantities that it feeds the people. The Lord provided for his people miraculously through bread from heaven and quail. But notice what God is teaching them through it. He just doesn't give it to them. God uses these gifts of manna and quail to teach his people obedience and trust. Do you see it? The manna came with instructions, verse 16. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omar for each person, which is 1.4 kgs if you're into kgs for each person you have in your tent. And the Lord's provision meant that everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Verse 19, he gave more instruction. Why didn't he just hand it over? No, he gives them more instruction so that they're going to exercise obedience and trust. The people were not to keep any of the manna over till the morning. The manna would be a daily provision by, given by God and the people, and they'd have to follow it in obedience and trust, this daily um, occurrence that God had provided for them. Folks, this is what true discipleship is all about. It's about learning to be obedient to God, learning that daily reliance on him for all things, following his word in all manners of life and faith. And you can see how powerful this bread from heaven is, can't you? As he feeds his people, that when you come into the New Testament, Jesus declares himself what? To be the bread of life. He who believes in him will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Belief and trust. The same ideas as the wilderness generation. The wilderness bread was about meeting their needs, but it was also about getting them to trust the Lord. Jesus fed the people so that they would trust him as well. It's an amazing. But the problem is, of course, it's easy in word to say we trust God in all manner, but in practice, it's not what happens. And we see this in verse 20. I wonder in this group, I think I'd be a hoarder. If 
Verse 20, some didn't follow God's instructions, and they hoarded the manna until morning. Imagine being out in the wilderness. You're getting this daily supply of bread. It goes. And then you think, you know what? I'm going to take an extra little bit. I'm going to take hoard it. Because you never know what tomorrow's going to bring. Perhaps they thought, what if it doesn't come again? Maybe they thought, let's take control of this, our futures, by storing it up. We know best. We shall follow our own wisdom and ways. And Moses was angry with them. Why is Moses angry? Because they're being disobedient. And what happened to the manna? It was full of maggots. And it stank in the morning. So the hoarder actually has maggots in the morning. How do we apply this principle of, of daily obedience and trust? Maybe it has to do with trusting God for future, for loved ones, for provision, for meaning and belonging, for love. For some of it, it means following God's word and ways in our homes, our work, our community life together as his church. This is what God is teaching us, trust and obedience by his provision. And secondly and lastly, it's connected this manna, but it's different, and it is the gift of the Sabbath, verse 22 and thir to 30. In order to see the significance of this gift, we need to keep in mind that the people's time in slavery, under the Egyptian tyranny, the people of God would have worked, 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 never had a day of rest. Egyptian life and culture had no Sabbath day rest connected with it. So under Pharaoh, Israel would only have worked, worked, and worked. But now they've been rescued, freed from the bondage of slavery. God doesn't work, work, work his people. Instead, he gives them the gift of a Sabbath day rest. God not only gives it to them, get this, but he makes it possible for them to have this rest. See it in verse 22 and 23. On the sixth day, the people gathered twice as much of the manna. They were instructed to keep the manna that they gathered overnight. Uh-oh, maggots? Hopefully not. And the next day, God preserves it. And verse 24 says it didn't rot or have maggots in it. So again, God, through this extra provision of manna, made it possible for them to have a Sabbath day rest. But again, we see the tendency of God's people to ignore his word and follow their own ways in verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather the manna, but they found none. And you see God's response to their disobedience and lack of trust and confidence in him. Verse 28, God says to Moses, how long, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instruction? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Obedience and trust in the manna and the quail. Obedience and trust in keeping a Sabbath day. The Sabbath was given to God's people by the Lord. It was made possible by his provision. It's a Sabbath day rest is a gift from the Lord. Why does the Lord give this Sabbath day rest? Firstly, to remind his people of their freedom. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, it'll come up on the screen, verse 15. They were told to observe the Sabbath so as to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. It, the Sabbath day was to remind them of their, of their slavery, but their freedom. It was to remind them that work, daily bread, was not the most important thing. Deuteronomy 8, 3 says, He humbled you 
causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your forefathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It was to remember their slavery and freedom. It was to remember that you do not live for work, but rather for the word of God. The Sabbath day rest today is the same reasons as they were then. It's a reminder to look back on what Christ has done at the cross for us. And yet Sabbath day rest also looks forward to that time when we will have an eternal rest with him in the new heaven and the new earth. But taking a Sabbath day rest requires us to take steps of obedience and faith, just like it did for the wilderness generation. It's becoming increasingly hard to take a Sabbath day rest when business is 24-7, when leisure demands, when home life becomes pressurized on time. And yet this is a creation ordinance. This was commanded before time. God took rest on the seventh day and rested from his creation. The fall interferes with it all. And yet here before the Ten Commandments, we see a Sabbath day rest given as a gift and then the commandments, and then into the New Testament, we see this command played through for God's people today. It is a step of faith and obedience when we take a Sabbath day rest. Folks, I'm challenged by that. Are you? Do you take a Sabbath day rest? Ah, time's too pressurized. I can't take time off work. It is there to remind us that we've been set free by the cross, that one day we'll enjoy eternal rest but it's also to make us think, you know what? I'm no savior. I don't need to work every day of the week. And there needs to be rest in the Lord to worship him, to be with his people and take in that. This morning, we see two provisions, manna and quail done to teach obedience and trust for his people. There's a life. This is the life of a disciple of the Lord. Grumbling and complaining, question the Lord's goodness, provision and care. Obedience and trust will be tested as we journey with the Lord. But take encouragement this morning. You will be tested. There will be grumbling and complaining. But take encouragement this morning. He always provides the way for us to act in faith and obedience. You're not alone. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word. He's given you the people of God to encourage you. The question is, don't be like the wilderness generation who are hardening of heart, forgetting his word. I want to allow a few moments of response, and I'm doing this myself, to repent of grumbling and moaning, to think of those occasions where you are at this moment in your life and times, whether it's at work or at home or even in church, and say, Lord, look, my grumbling complaint is really about you. It's not about these other things. Ask the Lord for help in keeping and trusting and obeying him in the wilderness or those Elam moments when life is good. Ask him to teach you what it is to trust and obey. Let's take a moment to respond to God before we sing our final hymn. God, we thank you this morning that you have rescued us through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Father, thank you for that lovely verse in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, you've rescued us in order to make us more like yourself, in order to sanctify us, heal us, transform us, change us, to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. But Lord, as we think about that great purpose you have in bringing glory and honor to yourself through the transforming of your people, Father, we admit we are grumbling and complaining. We're resentful. We're lacking trust and obedience in you. Father, you know our hearts. Father, search us. And Lord, we thank you from this passage that you enable your people to trust and obey. Father, thank you for your spirit, for your word, for the people of God. And we pray, Lord, that we will use these means to know the blessing of God Almighty. Father, continue to change us. Forgive us for our grumbling and moaning and complaining. And Lord, may we see you, the Lord, and his great purposes for his people. Lord, thank you for the reminder this morning from your word that you are the Lord and that one day we will see your glory. Lord, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen.